0: I consider myself a Green Democrat. I consider myself an Independent Democrat. I consider myself a Libertarian Democrat when it comes to basic civil liberties. And I consider myself a Democrat's Democrat when it comes to the mainstream issues of jobs for all, health care for all, peace, and so I can say that you know, I'm in this primary, and I'm in it to win, and I'm certainly in it to shift the Democratic Party in a direction where it actually aligns with the aspirations of people. There was a poll taken um, within the last week, and some of you may be aware of it, because over 70,000 people participated in it. It was it was kind of what you could call a political taste test. You would uh, the, the people who would take it online would 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 indicate where they stood on issues and then at the end they would hit a button and see which candidates they end up aligning with fifty three percent of the people who took the test found out that they aligned with me and all the other candidates were were, you know at or near single digits so you know i'm the mainstream candidate in that democratic party and that was
1: dennis kucinich that was back in 2007 when asked about the possibility of a, being a third party. But even he was saying at the time that a lot of his stuff was kind of mainstream, a lot of his beliefs and his platforms. And here we are in 2021, and Dennis Kucinich is a very mainstream figure, especially in the Democrat Party, with a lot of the things that seemed like it was they were far left, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, are pretty mainstream nowadays based on our political discourse. So, Dennis Kucinich, my guest today on the Check Your Brain podcast, uh, which, by the way, I appreciate you listening. I hope you downloaded it and subscribed and are able to check out the Patreon, which is at uh, patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R. For five bucks a month, you get early access to guests. You get uh, extra podcasts per week. I basically put about four or five podcasts a week. So for five bucks, you're getting a pretty darn good deal, if you ask me. Pardon my language. So my guest today, Dennis Kucinich, uh, former mayor of Cleveland. He is running again right now. I didn't really talk to him about that. I talked to him about his book uh, and other issues that were that have been going on. Dennis was indeed the, uh, the mayor of Cleveland at 31 years of age in 1977. However, a lot of issues were happening in the city of Cleveland, not unlike other places, but Cleveland was kind of a national joke back in the 1970s. And Dennis was the mayor in 77. The city, uh, there's a situation with Cleveland Public Power, Muni Light, I should say. Uh, It's Cleveland Public Power now with utility bills and a lot of corruption that was happening in that time, which is what his book is about. Uh, And and then also there was a recall effort, and uh, George Voinovich ended up becoming the Mayor of Cleveland, the last Republican mayor uh, Cleveland has had, and that's been over thirty years now. So, Dennis laid low for a little while, and then he resurrected himself in the '90s in the in the Ohio Senate, and then he ended up uh, being a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 1997 to 2013. And my path has crossed uh, Dennis's a number of times over the years. I've met him a couple of times and uh, talked to him over the phone and different interviews. And in fact, his office is in Lakewood, Ohio. Used to be down the street from me. I mean, literally, my street ended at his office. So it was kind of interesting. So, but he's been a he's been a, a commentator for a number of years, going on Fox News, and um, has been a real interesting lightning rod figure in American politics. And so it was really. I had to jump on the opportunity when I found out I got a chance to interview him. His book is called "The Division of Light and Power." It was available June eighth, and uh, get you know, pick it up if you want an opportunity to see what the some of the corruption that he had to deal with. And uh, we also talk a little bit about the, the war effort and him being one of the few, if any. I mean, there was only a couple. I mean, if you go back, I always say this: I graduated high school in two thousand six. And I kind of look at that era from about the beginning of the wars to Barack Obama as kind of like a a haze. I don't, there's not a lot that people really remember and go back to, but if you think about it, the, the one bipartisan thing that was happening was let's go to war and let's spy on our on citizens with the Patriot Act. And there were only a couple of people who were calling this out at the time. And they were known as nut jobs and everything, and... Yeah, you know, as much as I disagree with a lot of what, uh, personally, what Dennis Kucinich, a lot of his policies and uh, some of the things that he had, I've always respected him for being staying true to his principles. And very few politicians, if any, right now, do that, especially during COVID. And we just realized whether you're a Republican or Democrat, you're not really in this for the people who really need the the help the most. And you kind of forget where you came from. And I always thought Dennis stayed true to principles, even if I disagreed with him. So uh, this is my conversation with Dennis Kucinich. I actually got, when we talk about his book at first and and his, childhood but then we go on and talk about other topics so it's a really fun conversation hope you enjoy it and hope you subscribe and make sure you check out his book if you get an opportunity again it's called the division of light and power with my guest today on the check your brain podcast dennis gisage It's good to talk to you, uh, somebody who's uh, from, as uh, my father and my grandfather would say, the old neighborhood. <laughs>
0: yeah, they're, that's for sure.
1: They're from, uh, they're from uh, Auburn Avenue.
0: Oh, geez, that's off of 14th Street. Yep,
1: and a uh, whole family, went to St. John Cantius, and uh, I've met you a couple of times over at the uh, St. John Cantius Polish Festival. As you could probably tell, yeah. my last name is uh, very Polish, very, uh, very Cleveland. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, Kansas, uh thats where I went to high school, and you know, that's that's those are my peeps down there. It's yep. a great community.
1: It, re- it really is, and it's uh, boy, isn't it nice how it's kind of it's back? Tremont is a is really back.
0: It's back, but I'll tell you, they've got a lot of crime issues that uh, have to be addressed. I mean, people are buying four hundred thousand dollar homes there, and they're getting carjacked.
1: Yeah, oof. Yeah. That's uh yeah the crime's still still kind of been an issue but it is nice every so often going to a couple of those places and high and dry is back and southside and everything but uh, Yeah, I, I
0: mean I love the southside. Look, I, I mean I write about it. I you know, I I write about it in the book in terms of where I started. That's in the first chapter.
1: Yeah, and well actually I wanted to start there and I can hit record right now.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Let's yep. do, how
1: much time do you need, Tony? Uh, I, however much time you uh, you would like to do, because I don't want to keep you too long, but also uh, want to get into the nitty gritty with the with the book and. Uh, let's uh, just do it. Let's just
0: do it. And you you know, it's your call. Okay. Yeah,
1: absolutely, it sounds great. And uh, okay. Uh, Tony Mazur here with uh, Dennis Kucinich. He is the author of the – I mean, everybody knows who, who you are, former mayor of Cleveland, running again, uh, and has, has been around a name that people know, including running for president a couple of times. And uh, he has a new book out. It's called The Division of Light and Power. It's available uh, actually this week it's coming out. So uh, I'm looking forward to that and looking forward to the um, – the feedback that's coming from that but i want to first talk before we get like truly into the book i want to get a little more on your background because it plays into the theme throughout your book about uh, coming from a big family and essentially when they kept talking about he's the boy mayor and all of you know back in the 1970s of of coming up through politics you were basically getting a first hand crash course in politics from home when you were when you were a little
0: kid well, yes, in the, in the sense that, uh, you know, seeing what my parents were going through trying to find a roof over at uh, living in 17 or 21 different places by the time I was 17, uh, including a couple cars. And also, uh, you know, the issue of being able to pay the bills as the family expanded, particularly utility bills. And so I count uh, in the book, uh, the scene where my parents uh, were, uh, you know, we were in an apartment on St. Clair Avenue in Cleveland, and uh, a three-room apartment with about, at that point, I think we had like, there were four kids. And they were counting pennies to pay the uh, utility bill. And so, you know, those kind of um, memories were searing uh, when I became mayor of the city and had to decide whether or not to, I was going to fight for the Cities right not only own its own electric system, but they have rates that were that were cheaper
1: and that was the big controversy at the time was talking about muni light and it, you you really were somebody because you had the first hand experience you 're not, not like one of those career politicians at that point where there's there's payoffs, and as you mentioned in the book, a lot of corruption that happens, but the uh, when you're talking about a career politician where there, there could be kickbacks or could be deals where people ignore it, it's like, no, I was raised in a situation where we were people who had to look under the – the sofa and look through the car to find money to try to scrounge for uh, the utility bills, and everything. And you were at that time, especially in the 1970s, when there were a lot of brownouts and blackouts and everything that were, that were happening. And uh, you were kind of seeing that separation of, of rich and poor and the, the, uh, the uh, income disparity that was happening. You were definitely a fighter, Whether people, people and you gained a lot of respect in those days for that.
0: Well, you know, uh, I think it's always important that we remember where we come from and we remember the journey and sometimes the struggle of our families. And so I I did that. And, you know, when I just because I got elected, I wasn't suddenly going to pretend that I was somebody else that I came from someplace else. You know, I came I came from a family that 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 had a, a terrific time trying to make ends meet. And that had a real impact on I me mean, when I got not only to city council, uh, but later on when I got uh, to become the mayor of the city, and I had to make a decision, you know, whether or not I was going to uh, sell the city's uh, uh, municipal electric system, then known as Muni Light, uh, or whether I was going to fight to save it. And of course, what everybody you know remembers who was around at the time. Is that uh, the biggest bank in the state at the time, Cleveland Trust? Basically, told me, look, either you sell that system to the to the utility, which the bank was a business partner, or we're not going to renew the city's credit on loans I hadn't even taken out. So, so it was really Tony it was really a form of extortion, and I had to decide who was I there for? Why was I why was I in public office? So, the book, the Division of Light and Power, is really the story of that journey, and it's a story of. An unprecedented event in, in the history of not just Cleveland, but in any big city history, and that is a city being thrown into a, uh, a default, uh, not because we didn't have the money to pay our bills, but because the bank was trying to muscle me to sell our, our electric system.
1: Go back in those days uh, to the – because we're going we're, – this is the decade we're closing in on a half century that a lot of this was happening. And, and talk about the days of what a town like Cleveland – because it's not unlike a lot of other towns out there, whether it's in Akron, in Youngstown, Toledo, and Ohio. Then you have your, your Flint's and your Gary's and your Detroit's and you go into Pennsylvania and some of the places like Allentown where there were a lot of similar situations where some of these more, as we call them, the Rust Belt towns – had a harder time to bounce back after world war ii and after the little boon in the 1950s and by the 60s and 70s you were seeing cities like cleveland going to default and bankruptcy and corruption that was continuing to go on kind of set the mood of what a town like cleveland was like back then and have we really changed overall since then in the 40 45 years uh since these events occurred
0: well, well uh you know first of all uh, Cleveland uh n- never went bankrupt i mean check this out we 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 had property tax uh not property tax we had property we could sell to pay our 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 the debt that we owned the private utility we had um um income tax revenue that came in later that was ne- never enough for the bank. The bank wanted us to sell our electric system and they put us in default. it wasn't a bankruptcy uh because i i, I refused to sell the electric system by the way at a, at a cut rate uh price now cleveland's changed dramatically since then it's almost half of it's about half the population as it was then and there's a lot more poverty and there's a lot of crime and it's a city that uh, like a number of big cities today are struggling. It, it's struggling to be able to provide basic services. It's struggling to be able to uh, make sure that uh, there's safety. Uh, it, and and the poverty level is extraordinary. You know, there's 19, almost 20% of the people in Cleveland right now are, are existing on $10,000 a year or less. A third of the people who live in the city, are living at or below the poverty level and half of the children in the city are living at or below the poverty level so you know this is uh, this is Cleveland's phone on hard times doesn't mean that it's uh, down and out but it means that it's you know it's been through a very tough period
1: and it's continuing because of with the covid situation and exactly. people being put out of work and you know, whether some are, some would say they're incentivized not to work, some people are still afraid of the virus, some people, you know, whatever the case is, you know, welfare recipients. And, you know, you can go through a myriad of reasons why the city is still continuing to fall in hard times and why there are certain bounce backs, as we were talking a little bit off the air before, about how there are certain neighborhoods who do find a way and they, they embrace uh, more cultural aspects. But that doesn't necessarily... Bring the city to the finish line. It just kind of, kind of helps. I don't want to say masks a uh, some of the problems, but a town like Cleveland, and there's a lot of towns like this that are seeing jobs continue to leave, and that's what you were dealing with in the 1970s, and when you became mayor in 1977, that you were seeing that, that it was the times when you were there were the fight between the, the steel mills and uh, the auto plants and and stamping plants and everything else that was. They were in flux, whether they would be moving overseas or moving to the south, and we're still seeing similar situations here.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think you know, fortunately, the steel mill, fortunately, the steel mill is solid, uh, and you know, we have, are, we're still in the business of making uh, uh, cars in Northern Ohio, even though we've lost some plants, uh, and we're still, you know, we still have a presence in, in steel and automotive uh we had a bigger presence years ago in aerospace we had a huge presence in shipping Uh, there's no reason why those industries could not make a comeback because they are part of 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 the backbone of america's industrial strength but you know the book uh the division of light and power uh uh occurs uh during a time when cleveland was having a little bit of the transition but it was still in pretty good shape you know it uh uh you know it's still at a good employment rate people were uh uh, living in uh, in in neighborhoods that were still pretty solid, uh, they uh, and and quite diverse, I might add. You know, the area where I started uh, my politics, which my political career, was Tremont, and that 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 has in many ways uh, become a shining star of the city. Uh, in the way that it's not just um, uh, been maintained, but the way that it's come back with people really investing uh, their life savings to buy homes in Tremont because of its closeness to downtown and also because of its, its its inherent diversity. There's a lot about Cleveland that that is still great, but this what this book points out is that the decision-making process in a big city is often opaque. People aren't aware who's making the decisions. And as the mayor of Cleveland, you know, I made a decision to save the city's electric system under tremendous pressure. Uh, and it turned out to have saved the people of Cleveland hundreds of millions of dollars in utility rates and taxes up through the uh, mid-90s. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pleased to have been able to take a stand, but I, you know, I'm a Clevelander. I'm from this city. I just, I have a real commitment to Cleveland and, and this book I hope shows that as well because it's written with a love for the city. And the Division of Light and Power, by the way, Tony. That's the actual name of the municipal. Uh, when I was uh, working to be and beginning my effort to save the municipal electric system, that's that's the name of the system. The Division of Light and Power, and now it's the title of the book.
1: It's it's incredible, and it's but this. What's sad about this situation between the people, the politics, and the utility companies that. This has been going on. This isn't just a Cleveland-centric problem. That, as you point out throughout the book, this is happening in California. It's happening in Illinois. It's happening in Texas. It's happening all over. That this isn't just a, oh, this is a Cleveland thing and all the other places. And the term shadow government and all this other stuff that keeps popping up now. But this is really not an isolated incident, sadly.
0: 100% correct, Tony. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, this is why the book's getting national attention because people are starting to identify with it for events in Texas, you know, where they had blackouts there that that were um, devastating and, you know, caused a lot of people uh, not only economic harm, but physical harm. In California, we, we know about the role of a big utility there and not properly maintaining their lines and creating a wildfire, which uh, actually destroyed a town. Um, you know, there's... It, uh, Illinois, as you point out, uh, has uh, some of its own concerns about utilities. So yeah, all over the country, people are are experiencing these difficulties not only in paying the bill, but in the way these um, these companies are structured. And as a result, it's it's raising a lot of questions. And the book, uh, uh, the division of light and power, is arriving at a time when people are raising some fundamental questions about how these, how these utilities are being operated. So I've, uh, uh, you know, I, I have found a responsive uh, public out there far beyond the city of Cleveland and the state of Ohio.
1: Yeah, you're definitely going to get a lot of people looking into it, especially especially with people looking into how the government is spending money nowadays and who was getting bailed out last year during the, the COVID pandemic was that... I think a lot of people, and it didn't matter where you were on the political spectrum, the average American who got basically a couple of bucks, relatively speaking, for stimulus, then they're looking at these Fortune 500 companies getting billions of dollars in COVID relief that they didn't need. Well, again, while the American people are looking and saying, well, gosh, that's $600 is really going to take us very far.
0: Yeah, you're talking my language here, Tony. It's 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 the same uh, situation, and it almost um, it doesn't you know it's like whether Democrats or Republicans are in charge. You see that the money is still accelerating to the top, and the danger in America is that uh, the less the, you know the weaker the working class is, the weaker the middle class is, that's the basis of a democracy. And you start to you start to chip away at that. Uh, and and people have less opportunities or they're not getting the help that they need. And pretty soon, you know, America is looking a little bit like some of those uh, uh, countries in in Central America that we used to uh, point to as saying, well, God, it's good good that we're not like them. But, you know, we, we really have to protect our democracy. And that's one of the sub themes of the book, The Division of Light and Power, that that you know our democracy is at risk if if we don't if we're not involved at least on a level of our votes. So I'm, uh, you know, I appreciate your your awareness of the plight of of so many people today in this COVID era, and I suppose it'll be the post-COVID era uh, where they're just they they can't get a break, they can't they can't make ends meet, they're just try- struggling and. So it matters what they pay for electricity. It matters what they pay for food. As you see food prices are going up, you know, it matters. People are having a heck of a time now.
1: And they're looking at different costs that they have to, you know, kind of look at one thing and look at another where, for example, the price of insulin is going up. And if they can't afford that, they have to find different routes or... You know, And and kind of what's happened during the uh, opioid epidemic is that there's a lot of folks out there who can't afford some of the medication that they're on, so they end up going to the black market and looking in terms of opioids. And it's really affected not just here in Ohio but all across the country, and people can't pay for that. And as, yes, things are starting to slowly open up in the United States – it's, there's still going to be an on, uh, ongoing issue of people, especially lower to middle class individuals, who are looking going, I, I still just don't feel represented enough. And there are very few politicians, if you ask me, and this is one thing, I've always said this uh, about you. Is that you were one of the few fighters it seemed out there that was looking out for the middle class because that's where you came from. You your dad wasn't the governor, you know, you know your your dad wasn't the president, your dad wasn't a state senator or a US senator. You came from humble beginnings, because, and that's what you knew, and that was your appeal in the 70s, why people uh, went out and voted for you in Cleveland, and that was your appeal that you carried over these last few decades and become very successful, not just in politics, but outside of it as well, because... People in the middle class, no matter what you're looking for, whether it's a Democrat, Republican, Independent, Libertarian, Green Party, whatever party, they're looking for somebody who's going to be out for their best interests. And I, I think the last year has really shown a lot of people that, boy, there's really nobody representing us here in the middle class.
0: I, I, you know, I think you've uh, hit the nail on the head there. Uh, people are very concerned that they're not getting represented. You know, when I think of th- this issue about the destruction of, uh, of the middle class, I saw this coming almost 50 years ago. I did an interview with uh, Abe Zeiden from the Akron Beacon Journal years ago. And, you know, he was a terrific writer, you know, rest his soul. But he really, he, you know, we had a long interview about uh, what was happening with America's middle class at the time. And so you look at cities like like Akron, Cleveland, Canton, uh, Lorraine, uh, Youngstown. These cities are the backbone, not just of Ohio, but the country. And they were left to uh, decay because we had trade policies that moved jobs overseas, and we didn't really protect workers' rights the way we should. And so, you know, the people who are are left are people who were just, you know, continuing to struggle to make ends meet. Where one, where one wage earner could support a family, now it takes a, you know, two, and sometimes working more than two jobs. Uh, the economy has shifted so that. The dream of a middle class existence, which is a solid home and a solid neighborhood, good schools for the kids, and and you know being able never having to worry about putting food on the table, you know all that's disappeared many places. And so, you know, your awareness of that is is really important because uh, not many people in the media, you know, just like in politics, people move up, they forget where they come from. That happens in the media too. People move up, they forget where they come from, and and the awareness of what is happening in the neighborhoods is really critical because that points to the way to the task that we have today to try to rebuild our communities. And it can can still be done. I mean, it's a forever uh, endeavor uh, that we uh, remember where we've come from, try to rebuild and that's the that's the task of each generation, and in some cases, several generations.
1: When you talk about these politicians, and you talk about because I think a lot of them do get into public service with the right idea, but something gets muddied along the way. Some somehow somewhere, I don't know if some people are brought into a one of those you know dark smoky rooms and they're told what's going on. But what happens? With some of these politicians that they start off that you know, they're fighting for the working man, they're fighting for the people, and then all of a sudden they just compromise their principles. What, like, how does that happen? I'm sure you've seen that over time.
0: Well, I, you know, it, it, it's perceptive that you say that because if you look, uh, you, you look at the book, uh, you know, we're talking about the division of light and power. You go to the, you go to the beginning of the book where I just get into city council. And I'm I'm being squared around by people who some of whom are old enough to be my grandfather at that point, and they're starting to talk to me about the opportunities that come to those who are in public life, and uh, you, you know things that seem like they are not dishonest, but they are extra opportunities that come in, and you know right away you get into politics and you get it you get elected, and suddenly you know you're. In this uh, position of importance, and you get opportunities that come your way, and sometimes that causes people to just be led astray and decide that uh, they're going to get theirs and don't worry about anybody else. I mean, that impulse is a very human impulse to say, well, okay, I got elected and I've got opportunities that are extraordinary. You know, but when you step out of your own narrow self and you look at what the people who were elected, you are facing day to day, you, you have to focus on what their concerns are, not just on yours. And, and you know, that really is the challenge in electing people to, to uh, office. Uh, you, you give people your vote, but, you know, occasionally you have to check in to make sure they're using that vote in a way that supports the concerns that you have as, uh, you know, as a as a voter and as a member of a community.
1: Well, since you're out kind of outside that bubble right now, as far as being in uh, in Washington and seeing what's happening, who are some politicians, I guess, that have maintained their integrity, whether you agree with them or not uh, politically, socially or whatever. But who would you say if you can name any names out there that are politicians that are looking out for the best interests of people and have maintained that integrity since they started?
0: You know, I have a library full of books of uh, people who I've admired over the years. Um, uh, people like uh, Hubert Humphrey, who was mayor of Minneapolis, U.S. senator, and then was a presidential candidate. Um, uh, Robert Kennedy, he came from a family of wealth, but he really was focused on the needs of, uh, of the underprivileged. Um, you know, Martin Luther King, who led a, uh, who never held an office, but Led a, an effort for social and economic justice. Uh, you know, the people that that I have uh, that I grew up watching were people who were striving to try to make the world a better place. And that's uh, there are still people out there at every level who are doing that. And and you know, I I'm uh, I'm aware there are plenty of people who are doing that. But there's also, we have to be aware, there's also that siren call of, of uh, campaign donations and, uh, and people struggle to be able to get their campaigns funded. And sometimes, you know, that moment comes when uh, the, the donation is dangled above a politician's head and they say, well, if you, if you want this, this is what we want. And our politics has really become uh, uh, damaged by uh by big money and it affects decisions at all levels right you know tony it's it's you know but are there people out there trying to do the right thing absolutely you know Every you know there and and i think a lot of it also has to do with religious training i mean i was very fortunate you know i though we had trouble economically i, I was able to go to catholic schools and scrub floors to pay off not just my tuition bill but my siblings and I uh, had a uh, an education uh, not just in religion but in ethics about doing the right thing. no matter what the no matter what the odds are, no matter what you're threatened with, you just do the right thing and that's that's you know, and I think that any kind of a spiritual or ethical education becomes very important today because there are there are moral questions that we're faced with, and we have to uh, uh, see them as such. And sometimes, uh, uh, you know, those decisions aren't easy. But I always rely on, uh, you know, the basic questions of right, right and wrong, and, uh, um, and and you know, there there is a spiritual dimension we must never forget when we get into public life. It's not just about the material world. It's very
1: true. And, and I, I won't keep you too much longer, Dennis. And this has been a fantastic and uh, getting a chance to talk to you. One thing I wanted to ask you, because running for president, especially in 2004, when we were, you know, you're know you in the thick of the Iraq war and the the conflict in Afghanistan, and I'm somebody who's very, very anti-war myself. And as time has gone on, you get over kind of the rah-rah post 9-11 patriotism and realize what we were actually doing. And At the time, there were a lot of people looking at, they were saying, oh, Dennis Kucinich, that guy's so far left, he's this and that. And as time has kind of gone on, your platforms and your, your ideals have become very mainstream now. You've been kind of a real trailblazer, especially when it comes to progressive thought over time. Because, you know, you go back to, again, 2003, 2004, it's the thick of the Bush administration. Everybody kind of felt like he was going to get reelected in 2004 because wartime presidents, you don't usually see much of a changeover. And here you come with your progressive ideology that was more of a, uh, you know— I think a lot of people weren't as responsive to it in 2004, but by 2021, where you are seeing the the younger group, the squad and and others who are kind of embraced that and have taken that to a different level. The way I look at it as an outsider, I see, boy, Dennis Kucinich really was a trailblazer in that time.
0: Well, you know, I appreciate you saying that, Tony, and I I will tell you what it was like. So right after 9-11, I saw this rush to war against Iraq. And I said, wait a minute, Iraq didn't have anything to do with 9-11, it didn't, you know, or with Al-Qaeda's role in 9-11, it didn't threaten the United States, it didn't have, you know, there's no proof it had weapons of mass destruction. It didn't matter. The drums were were being uh, uh, beaten to take us into war. And I I protested that mightily and organized 125 members of Congress. And said, look, we have to take a stand against this. This is fundamentally wrong. And here we are, you know, 20 years later, and looking at the disaster that we visited upon Iraq. And they were just bystanders. They had nothing to do with 9-11. And so, you know, I, I felt that, that, you know, the same impulse as a, somebody from the neighborhoods of Cleveland, a kid out of the Cleveland neighborhood. That took me in the city council, that led me to the mayor's office, that caused me to stand up and speak out on behalf of the economic rights of the people in the city back then. It's the same thing that caused me to take a stand when I got to Congress and said, wait a minute, this has nothing to do with with, with what our concerns ought to be as Americans. And yet we were led into this war. That war, the Afghanistan and the, and the uh, Iraq war, have cost Americans over $6 trillion uh, short and long term cost look at all the money you know on the money that could have been spent in our in our cities rebuilding america instead we used it to blow up bridges in a in a in a country thousands of miles away that people had had nothing to do with uh with 9-11 this is heartbreaking tony i'll tell you and i uh, you know for me uh, it, it, yes it's nice to be right but i wish that there were times that i wish that when i gave these warnings. I wish that the events had gone the other way and that it proved that uh, I, was, I was overly concerned. But as time has gone on, uh, we see what a disaster the Iraq war has been.
1: Yeah, and the, and the worst part was the propagandizing that was happening from both sides, especially in the media. You were seeing the Bill Crystals of the world and New York Times and saying, no, we have to go to war. We have to do this. And I'm like, no, we we really don't. Um,
0: but wait, wait a minute. Tony, Tony, listen, you just said something that I want to share with you to show you how perceptive you are. I, I had a, as a presidential candidate, I had a meeting in the executive offices, the editorial offices in New York times in New York city. And I was explaining to them that the, the case hadn't been made, uh, to go to war against Iraq. And they looked at me like, what the heck do you know? You're, you're just a congressman from Cleveland, Ohio. And you know, we're the New York times and, you know, we have all this inside information. I'm I'm shaking my head. I'm saying, these guys are 100% wrong, and they, you know, they act like uh, uh, just because they're in a office building in uh, Midtown Manhattan uh, that somehow God gave them more intelligence than somebody who's, you know, off the streets in the city of Cleveland. What was fascinating about that was it, nowadays,
1: because we kind of look at things, you know, Monday morning quarterback, you say, okay, maybe that was a bad idea to go over to, but uh, but it really wasn't because there were people who were like yourself who were whistleblowing at the time that were that were saying this and nowadays we've gotten people on now both parties Who have now said, okay, yeah, this endless war needs to end and we need to get, but it's like, yeah, okay, it would have been nice to say that without the trillions of dollars that we've spent and how many thousands, even millions of lives that have been lost, whether overseas or uh, domestically, that we have lost in that process. And thankfully, I think people have finally woken up and said, nope. Now, this, this war, we, we need to – not so much isolationism, but you need to just go, look, this, this war just – this endless war finally needs to come to a conclusion here.
0: Well, you know, you're right, and it's about taking care of things at home first. And, you know, what I thought was the most repugnant thing at the beginning was, you know, they're calling on people's patriotism. If you love America, you're going to support this war. I'm thinking, well, if you love America, you love the truth. And if, it's, and if Iraq didn't have anything to do with 9-11, why the heck are we blowing it up? And so, you know, this is the kind of uh, dilemma that people in public life are presented with. And, you know, because of where I came from in the neighborhoods of the city, I was able to identify what, you know, if something was wrong, I, sh- I should say it. If I felt that, you know, there was reason to question the events in front of me, I did. And this book, *The Division of Light and Power*, Tony, it, it's, that's what it's all about. It's about, you know, any one of us who finds ourselves in a position where we know what's going on and speaking out uh, despite the consequences. And uh, you know, I I really I really appreciate this interview. You are so grounded in in what people go through, and I can understand why people listen to you because your your voice is really the voice of the people. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And by by the way, people can get the book uh, through Amazon, through Barnes & Noble, through Target, and there's a number of different sources. The book goes on sale uh, tomorrow.
1: Yep. It's the Division of Light and Power. You can get that. And also, if you can, and I'm sure if you're at a local bookstore, please support them as well. So, I mean, yes, if you can get it on Amazon, if you can't find a bookstore, but make sure you also, if it's available in a local small bookstore, please go support them as well.
0: I'm, that for, I'm, I'm with that program 100%. Thanks again.
1: Dennis, thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you, and hopefully uh, I can see you in a couple of months at the Polish Festival.
0: Uh, that would be good. Thanks uh, again. Er-